We live in a fantasy world now. Reality has been destroyed. This is the time that we really need to pay attention. The probabilities are overwhelmingly on gold's side. That is the best environment to see gold increase its value. Welcome to Palisades Gold Radio. I'm your host, Tom Bodrovics. Joining me today is Michael Oliver from Momentum Structural Analysis. Happy New Year and welcome back to the show, Michael. Hey there. Good to be back. So, Michael, I want to start by discussing this past year before we get into the charts. You know, you recently commented on the job number that was released this past Friday, and it was presented as a really positive number of a gain of 216,000 jobs added last month. So once you dig into that number, how does it break apart? And is it really indicative of a positive direction for the economy? Well, I don't have all the precise data points, but they did break it down for you. The Bureau of Labor Statistics, if you go down and look at the economic sectors that gain jobs, lost jobs, et cetera, you find that the gains were in healthcare and uh, home care. Uh, the, the, you know, it's essential. You know, it's essential for our life. We need health care and social assistance, social assistance. Yeah. But social assistance is very broad and very much. Uh, what you might call soft type jobs, like if somebody visits your grandmother at home to help her clean up her kitchen and stuff like that. You, you, you get my point. Mm-hmm. There were a huge gain in that sector. Okay, fine. Uh, but then the, the other sectors that gained, like government, <laughs> you know, like over 25% of the entire job gain was in the, the government. Oh, great. Well, we all know that's very productive, you know, mm-hmm. uh, core to the economy. But then when you go down to the sectors within the economy that you would more associate with the economy as such, like manufacturing, uh, uh, transportation and warehousing, and and all the sectors you might want to name that are sort of core to the economy, they were pathetic. Mm -hmm. In fact, they were net negative. When you you added in the transportation and warehousing was like a... That was a loss of 22,600. Right. That basically wiped out all the little minor gains and some of those other core economic sectors, such that all the sectors that you might want to add up as, as being core to the economy, they were a nut, net nothing. Mm-hmm. It was all in government and home care. Okay. So uh, so I, I think some people noticed that, by the way. I, I, I'm sure that inside the Fed, they don't just look at the top number and cheer, because if they looked at the numbers specifically, they realized, oh boy, this is, uh, you know, government. Uh, mm. uh, anyway, so yet yet on CNBC and Fox Business News, everybody declared it was a great, solid economy. Okay. I'm, I'm sure President Biden appreciated that very much. Um, there was also, I understand, other metrics within that number that showed that full-time jobs, uh-uh, not good. Part-time, great. So there was a shift there as well. Mm-hmm. So anyway, the, the job data didn't look good. And I'm pretty sure that the Fed, uh, they know that. So they're not having the same response that financial TV is cheering it. They know that, hey, this thing's getting soft. Okay. Well, it's, you know, with the Fed being so data dependent all the time, it's right. <laughs> you would think that there's no way they could ignore the actual breakdown of how those numbers actually played out, right? I think there's another quote data point that isn't really isn't a data point that people look at that they're most concerned about. Mm-hmm. And that's their T bond market. Uh, long, long-term government debt. Yeah, yeah. We'll we'll definitely get into that. But what other markets are 
you know, really showing this direction for the economy. How about like consumer discretionary spending? Well, if you uh, MSA got bearish on the stock market in January and February of 2022. Now, look at it, this XLY chart. Now, XLY is the consumer discretionary ETF. Okay, it's also considered a risk on sector, meaning this is one of the sectors you want to be long in an up market because this this has it has Amazon's up front in this thing and a lot of big symbols. Um, mm-hmm. And if you'll see there, uh, it peaked back in late 2021, approaching 220. And then the big bad down bar that you see there off the two bars off the high was January of 2022. Now, we got bearish on the NASDAQ 100 and the S&P 500 in January and in February of that year. So you could circle that zone up there. And that's basically where we said, be gone from the stock market. Okay. Now, if you were gone from this supposedly leading risk on sector, you haven't missed a thing. Okay. Now, also, when you look at this chart and somebody tells you, oh boy, the stock market's making new all time highs, and you look at this chart, you know, let's say you're heavily invested in consumer discretionary and you're scratching your head. And by the way, you can flip up almost any sector within the US stock market except tech and I think industrials. But all the others look about like this. It was there halfway or two thirds of the way back to the high after a laborious year and a half rally effort. And they're still not back to the highs. So uh, the assumption that the market's making new highs, you need to splash some water on your face by looking Mm -hmm. at these charts. Well, we'll get to the S&P as well. But I wanted to pull this chart up because it really shows, you know, the ability of the average person to be able to spend money right now. Yeah, no. And also any other consumer sector like uh, retail mm-hmm. or even consumer staples, you know, the essentials of life, they look about like this. Retail yep. looks worse than this. Okay. So all the three consumer related ETF sectors within the, within the market mm-hmm. look like this or worse. So, you know, we hear this story about the consumers robust and spending like crazy, et cetera, et cetera. Well, you know, I, uh, you know, Where's the proof? Mm-hmm. Um, and I suspect the Fed uh, realizes this underneath the surface that uh, things aren't quite what the data points indicate. Mm-hmm. Uh, we shall see. Well, a feeling of wealth for the average person is home prices, right? And that yep. chart, I think, actually looks, as you said, very similar. Yeah, this also includes uh, REITs, uh, including office towers and so forth. And I read the other day that the California Retirement Fund is uh, having a problem right now because they have such a heavily invested percent of their assets in especially commercial real estate. Mm-hmm. It's hurting them a lot. Now, look at this. This is up to date through you know last Friday's close. Each of these is a monthly bar. Mm-hmm. Uh, are we near the high? Not even halfway back to the high. Mm-hmm. If something's wrong here. No, maybe real estate doesn't matter anymore. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, Michael, what other, you know, data points should we be looking at here? How about GDP or ISM data? I don't look at them much because, one, if you go back and look at prior bull market tops in the stock market and then find a bunch of charts of these so-called data points that are supposed to be important, you'll see they certainly didn't lead you into turning bearish. Mm -hmm. Uh, They followed the market down. So they weren't good indicators of 
future action. They might have softened a little teeny bit or something, but you know, there was no real dramatic collapse. Now, the, like that chart we just looked at, you know, that's sort of a smack in the face data point. Uh, something's not what we think it is. But most of the data points are going to be lagged. And so if, if you depend upon them, uh, you're going to miss it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you'll miss 20, 30 percent off the top before the data points smack in the face. And I also suspect, as I, as I mentioned before, I think the data point the Fed's looking at right now is not so much those, quote, data points, mm-hmm. but the illiquidity and what just happened to their precious T-bond market. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, considering the dual mandate of the Fed, obviously, the S&P is something <clears throat> that they have been, in a way, Powell has been trying to break, Right. He has been trying to break that habit of investors to come back into the market whenever there is a dovish pivot or any type of pivot from the Fed. So let's just go to look at the S&P and how it's performing. And are we seeing a rollover or a breaking of the momentum that drove it up to the highs again? Okay. The um, S&P action, here we go. This just goes back to uh, last August, uh, and you'll see that we had a sell-off into October of last year, stopped just above 4,100, and then we had the verticality recently, uh, you know, uh, late October, November, December primarily, and very unusual tone, very grabby type tone. In other words, the buyers wouldn't even let the market exhale. It was inhale only all the way to the top. Uh, and only a few of those days were really explosive. It's mainly just every day up a little bit, up a little bit, up a little bit. Very unusual tone of action and price. Mm-hmm. The chart below, these again, this is a fairly short-term analysis of the market. We're looking at day-to-day action measured against a 10-day moving average. So this is the kind of stuff you'd look at if you're a swing trader, you know, looking to get in and get out in two weeks or three weeks, whatever. Um, the action since October surged out above the zero line uh, on the bottom chart. And, and got up there to 150 plus points over the zero line on the momentum chart. And then it pulled back in that pause period in December where we paused. The S&P was caught below 4,600. Well, momentum pulled back to the zero line, meaning down to the 10-day average, slightly below, but basically that's where it pulled back to. And then it shot up again. Okay, But notice when price made the new high versus the highs it saw back in late November, just short of 4,600. Uh, momentum did not. So momentum was saying, hey, yeah, I'm not, I don't have the momentum you think I've got. Okay. And then it started to roll over. And a week ago, the opening of the year, first day of trading is when you broke below that horizontal structure. In other words, what had been support for momentum was blown out. Now we're getting a rally today, but we're still well up under that red line, by the way, on the momentum. But this looks broken enough to me to indicate that the one-way street that we've had since uh, November and December, uh, it's not a one-way street anymore. You know, they, we're going to get some exhale here. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a problem with that. Our longer-term metrics, uh, which we don't don't have here, but uh, the longer-term metrics, annual and quarterly momentum, for example, where we're more concerned about what's going to happen over the next year. Uh, they could be in jeopardy if this this shorter term metric persists much on the downside. Like you get down in the forty five hundred zone, and I'm going to start blowing structures on bigger charts. Mm-hmm. 
longer term charts that say, oh boy, I, I did just crack the ice. I've, I've fallen below. Okay. And there's a final number we've got around the 4,300 level. Now, if you look at those price levels of 4,500 to 4,300, it doesn't really mean too much. There's not the pivotal low was down there at 4,100 you know, last year. That would be a point that would concern people. But we're, we're arguing you get down close to 4,500, you start to break the big stuff again. And down around uh, the mid 4,300s, you start blowing annual momentum through massive structures. Now, we got bearish again in January, February of 2022, so two years ago. At the price levels you're looking at right now on the S&P, okay, this 4,700 area, for example, its peak back then was 4,818. So we didn't quite make a new high in the S&P. The Dow did and the NASDAQ 100 did. The S&P didn't quite. Uh, but um, you you can't have a normal exhale here. Uh, and if you go back the last couple of years on the S&P, let's say throw up a weekly chart on your quote screen, and you'll see that there were a lot of rallies and sell-offs over the last couple of years, both ways. And a lot of them were 15 and 20% swings. It was not uncommon, okay? Uh, you can't afford that now. You can't afford 10%. Uh, our trigger numbers are down, you know, the lowest one's down in the 4350 area. So, you know, th that's not even 10% below the current market. And then our top number is above 4,500. So, you know, a single percent drop in the S&P now starts to blow out some big stuff on momentum. Uh, and so th the issue now is, okay, well, if you've started to break it on a short to intermediate term basis, will that be enough to get you down to the bigger minefield? And my, my guess is yes. But I don't think it's going to be something that happens overnight. You know, I don't think this is a crash mode situation. Looks like more, you know, more arm wrestling. And also there's a there's a price chart problem with this, what you see in front of you. If you're a price chartist and you're looking at the top chart, you're feeling real good, still feeling pretty good. But if you try to plot a trend line of any credibility, you really can't do it. It's just too steep. There's not enough pivots along the line to create one. Uh, unlike the zigzag process back last year from the, uh, above 4,500 down to 41, there were zigzags. You could draw a trend line down. This time it's straight up and therefore a price chartist does not have a good sense of where do I put my sell stop? Mm -hmm. And therefore there's a degree of uncertainty and therefore greater fear on the part of a long if this, this thing starts to roll over again. They don't know where they need to put their stop. Michael, you and I have spoken before about this arm wrestling type move down that you see. So why do you think that it's not going to be a, a major crash type event? Well, historically, bear markets in the U.S. don't usually entail crashes. Mm -hmm. um, the 29 top began with a crash. But then you had a 50% rally back to the high into March of 1930. And the president at the time, Hoover, said, everything's fine. <laughs> he came out with a statement. That was the place to sell it. Okay. And then you went down from the 1930 rally highs where the bear really started. Incrementally, arm wrestling style. You never crashed all the way from that high to the 1932 low. There was no crash. Then you go back to the 2000 dot-com top. And that was a laborious top. We called the top in January of 2000. 
and warned, though, that there were some of the metrics that said you could fiddle hard around for a while, and you did. In fact, in August of 2000, the S&P went up and made a marginally higher high than it had earlier in the year. It was laborious, sort of like what we've seen for the last two years, you know, up, down, up, down, and within a range below the high, but not, not a crash situation at the lows. Ours has been wider. Of course, our bull market's been three times longer and much bigger in dimensions. But uh, even the dot-com top never crashed. Go back and look at the S&P or NASDAQ measured from the high to the 2002 low. There's not a crash there. A crash being defined, uh, we do, as something that occurs in a matter of several weeks and amounts to well more than 30%. Never happened. Mm-hmm. You go back to the 2007 top, and the entire year of 2007 was arm wrestling. And in fact, in December of 2006, we, we re- put out a report, year-end report, saying we're going to top next year likely between 1550, 1600. It took us all year of arm wrestling to finally, and the Fed cut rates here in September of 2007, after a couple of years of rate rises that had preceded that, they cut rates by half a basis point. And you had like a four-week surge in the S&P to a marginally higher high, which was between 1550 and 1600. Finally got into our zone and it topped. If you sold, if you shorted, a few weeks after the Fed cut rates, you nailed the top. Mm-hmm. They cut rates all the way down. So people thinking that if the Fed's going to cut rates, it's going to be good. No. In fact, at the 2000 top, they started cutting rates aggressively in January, first day of trading, 2001. Market was still not far off the high. They cut rates all the way down. The market went down all the way. So rate cuts are not bullish for the stock market because it says the Fed knows something they're very concerned about. So this cheering right now we're getting about the rate cuts to come, be very suspicious. But again, crashes aren't normal. Um, Now, there was a crash-like event late, very late, in the 2008-2009 bear market. It was in October of 2008. There was a period of several weeks where you did go like a 30% drop. But it was a full year after the market had already peaked and started its bear. So it wasn't something that happened early on. And I suspect that's going to be the case this time. The only caveat I would give is getting down to our zone of death between, let's say, 4,500 and 4,350 on this top chart. Mm-hmm. You don't see the reasons on these charts, but on, if you looked at annual momentum, you would see it. You'd say, ooh, ooh. Uh, anyway, getting down to there, I think, is likely to be arm wrestling. But if you get down through that 4,300 level, our final breakage point, we could have some speed up in this process uh, in terms of the downside uh, tone. But right now, I don't expect that. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's it's interesting to think about these times that are marked by, as you said, Hoover kind of coming out with his statement that everything's fine. Hopefully, this one isn't marked by Secretary Yellen coming out and saying we've achieved that soft landing as she did last week. Right? She did. She cheered. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, she didn't express panic this time about the T-bond illiquidity, which she said back October in 2022. Mm-hmm. Yet the nuke event, we predefined it as such back in August of last year, we thought the bonds were going to collapse. And what was so interesting, and again, if you're in the, there's TLT, which is an ETF of long-dated U.S. Treasury. These are weekly bars. You can see back in August where the, the ellipse begins the T-bond market, rather than ratcheting down, started to puke. 
uh, more crash-like, you know, for the T-bond market, dropping that percent that quickly is, is a crash-type dimension for it. Mm-hmm. Funny thing was, the interesting thing was, if you look back then to things like high-yield corporate debt or muni bonds, they were going down as well, but they didn't go down in this type of tone. Mm-hmm. They didn't crash. This was a nuke event. And I guarantee the Fed will never express it, did not express it. They were panicked by this event because this was not part of their incremental playbook. And yet long rates went through the roof. Prices collapsed. And so uh, Yellen was no doubt very concerned about what she said October a year before, illiquidity in the T-bond market. So no doubt the reason the Fed has said, yeah, we're going to cut rates probably in June or something like that. And there's no doubt they're going to. My bet is it happens sooner. Mm-hmm. But this is the factor that really caused it, not some data point. It's the fact that their precious T-bond market was out of control. Um, and the chart below shows weekly momentum. But uh, as you can see, it, it, it flipped up nicely in October uh, and broke out. But the uh, black arrow shows a point at which we said, okay, buy this market. Mm-hmm. But when we got up to 100, 99 to 100 was our target zone. We said, be gone. And right now it's lower than the price you see there. Uh, this is a week or so old here. Um, but uh, we think that move is now over, that recovery move, that V bottom type thing. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure what's going to happen next, but the, I think you've seen the easy part of the recovery. And the question now is, the Fed is no doubt very nervous about this market. They never expressed that. If they did, it would it would indicate there's a fire. Okay, of course. Uh, but you know that's got to be a driving force in their thought process. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can look at the data points all you want, argue about a decimal point here or there, but this is what spooked them. Well, when we look at you know the last candle here from mm-hmm. the beginning of this year, you know the, almost the whole thing is below the the price chart momentum line or trend it's a three, line. three week moving average is short term average yeah uh-huh mm-hmm. yeah and also it's you know almost completely outside of the momentum line is that is that a major you know structural break of well of those trend lines you'll see that the there's two bands red bands on the momentum chart this upper standard deviation band and the lower standard mm-hmm. deviation band Whenever you see the upper standard deviation band drop below the zero line if you go back to October you know, about 10 weeks over to your left, you'll see the red band drop below the zero line, the upper red band drop below the zero line. That indicated oversold condition. That's the way we use our tool. And not always do you get a sharp rally, but quite often you will. And sure enough, that's when the bottom was just about to be made right after that oversold reading. Now, if you go over to the recent action, you'll see that the lower SD band uh, our weekly momentum SD band rose above the zero line. And sure enough, what happened to price at that point? It stalled and then rolled over. Mm-hmm. So these the bands indicated extreme level on the downside, extreme level on the upside. And sure enough, we're starting to break down that. Mm-hmm. Um, the question is, how deep is it going to be? Is it going to get out of control? I doubt it. But the Fed doesn't want this market to downtick anymore. Uh, for rates to go up because it was beyond their control. They didn't want this to happen, what happened in that ellipse. Uh, that was totally beyond their control. And therefore, it, it chilled their backbone. Uh, they'll never tell you that, but it did. 
So this market, this market's important. Now, this is TLT going back to 2019 weekly. So get back quite a few years. And you'll see the bull market peak up there to 180. We also watched T-bond futures, and they were very reflective of what TLT was doing. The circle part up there on prices, when we turn major long-term bearish based on quarterly and annual momentum. Now, this is a, a long-term momentum chart below, but we turn bearish back in that circled area. And you can see the bear market persisted for a couple of years with lovely counter-trend rallies. The kind of rallies that would make you feel like, oh, it's all over. It's great. Everything's fine. You know, mm -hmm. uh, typical of any trend. Uh, but then at the tail end there, that was the down on the right. You'll see we we crashed down toward 80. So we'd gone from 180 to 80. Wow. I mean, that's a huge percent drop in price rise in yields. Mm -hmm. Well beyond anything the Fed might have wanted to see during since 2022 when they started raising rates. Uh, but you'll notice if you try to plot a trend line on the price chart, you just can't do it. If you go back to the 2019 high and draw a line, it's not even going to intersect near where the current action is. It's up in space somewhere. But when you plot it on this 200-week momentum oscillator, and what's 200-week? Well, it's like a four-year average, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, so we plot each week in its relation to how much above or below the 200-week average. And you've got a momentum chart here. Oh, it has a structure, meaning that there was the two-point line, and we went up and kissed it at that recent rally high. So when we said get out near 99 or 100, this chart was bumping. Not only was it overbought on the weekly that we just looked at, but this chart was bumping two levels. One is a horizontal level of likely resistance, we note with the black line on the bottom chart. Mm -hmm. And the other is the intercept point of that red line. So this market is now crested at a level that makes some sense. Question is, what happens after this? Mm -hmm. uh, but right now, that's that's the problem, is that you've hit resistance. Uh, the easier path is now downside, meaning slightly rise in rates again. Uh, now, I don't think th th this is, again, a market that's out of the control of the Fed. They control the short end. They don't really control the long end of the market. Mm -hmm. uh, and in, in history, you know, the prior bear markets, as I noted before, 2000 top to 2002 bear low, or the 2007 top to the 2009 bear low, the Fed cut rates all the way down. So rates were declining, and yet the stock market went down. So we could have a situation where ultimately TLT and the T-bonds break through this resistance they just bumped and continue to rise a bit in price, continue to decline in yields. I don't think it's going to be very much, though, because the very, very long-term momentum of T-bonds broke so much in the drop in 2021 and 2022 that any major rally you see now in T-bonds or drop in yields is a counter-trend rally. Mm -hmm. It's not a new bull market. But nevertheless, you could have a, a decline in rates, and possibly that would be due to what? Asset managers saying, hey, you know, uh, this portfolio category, 40%, 60%, right, you know, uh, is sold out. Uh, I don't think it's going to hurt much anymore. So I'm going to move some assets out of the questionable stock market arena into this traditional portfolio category. Mm -hmm. And so you could have some external investment support behind this market as well, not just the Fed and the Treasury supporting it. 
Well, I find it's interesting how well it's respected that trend line on the bottom chart as well. Yeah, yeah. That's what we call momentum structure. (laughs) So on the other side of that, Michael, I'd like to turn obviously to talking about gold. You know, it's it's it seems like, you know, just looking at this price chart for the last four years, we've kind of bumped up just over that hundred or two thousand dollar price level several times here. So what I want to discuss with you is something that you have kind of pulled out of this data that I that I haven't really seen too many other places. So I want to talk about the difference between gold here and the silver chart. So obviously for those that are just listening on audio only, this is a four-year price chart of gold's weekly closes. And you know, it's kind of breaking up and to the right. Whereas silver has broken up to let's say $28 and then from there come back down and bumped up to $26 three separate times over the last, Mm -hmm. let's say two years. Mm -hmm. So just from these two charts, Michael, why did you include these and put them together? Well, it's interesting that in the past bull markets in gold, we go back 50 years, gold was legalized in 75. Mm-hmm. But its bull market back then started in the mid-1970s in the $30 range. And ultimately, by 1980, 10 years later, it was 850 You know, So it was a huge multiple-fold move with, with declines in between. But in the latter phase of the bull market then, 79 to 80, and also between the 2000 bull market corrective lows down around $250 gold up to its $1920 peak in 2011. So you're talking a decade bull market. It's in the last year of that bull market that things went vertical. Now, I'm not arguing the case that's got to be exact number of years because the, the years aren't exactly the same the, in terms of duration, but they're pretty old bull markets and they're not two, three year old things that, you know. But it's in the last year that things go berserk. It's almost as if silver and gold are somehow restrained. And then suddenly they just bust loose and they make up for the prior restraint. And silver quite often is lagged to gold at points during that bull trend where gold may be going up at a nice, even arm wrestling pace. And silver has its fluctuations that often will underperform gold. And then briefly, maybe outperform and then underperform. Mm. And certainly since 2000, the year 2000, 2020, excuse me, when gold shot up to $2,000 plus, silver shot up intra-month, these are weekly closes, almost to 30, mm-hmm. peak weekly close around 28. And then it entered for a year almost, mid-2020 through mid-2021, a sideways zone. Finally, it made an intra-week price high at $30 back in in early 2021. So after gold had peaked already in the summer of 2020. But then at that point in like in May of 2021, you'll see that top reading there at $28 weekly close. That point, silver price started to go down significant percent, 28 bucks to an eight, just under 18 below. That was October of uh, September of last year. So it was in a decline, net decline, whereas gold, while it had a washout in late 2022, just like silver showed there, it was really more range bound sideways. Multiple times it went up to 2070 in early 2020, 
In early March, uh, March of 2022, it went up to 2070 again. And then early in 2023, we had this recovery surge with both gold and silver coming up off that late 2022 low. And silver, for a while there, beat gold. But silver went from 18 up to 26 by early 2020, uh, by about April of 2023. Mm -hmm. But in the process of getting up there to that 26 level again, you'll notice that we've plotted a parallel price channel. It's one price chart technical feature that we like best. We consider it quite reliable rather than simple trend lines. There's a parallel channel that defined all the action since 2020 through late 2022. And it finally, it rallied into late 2022 and bumped the top of that channel again and pulled back. And it was in early 2023 that it finally broke the backbone of that channel. So even price at that point said, oh, I'm back. Okay. But it's since been capped by price chart sellers, obviously. Every time you get a weekly close up near 26, and it's been three times now, they sell it, they sell it, they sell it. They think that's the key level, and it's no doubt important. But price has already broken out above a parallel channel. But the point is that gold is above all those highs, and yet silver is restrained below them. So silver obviously has been underperforming. See, gold's out above the 2020 and the 2022 highs, where silver's still laboring below those. So that's no doubt frustrating to silver bolts. Mm -hmm. So there's, aside from the price and momentum of silver, we're watching the spread relationship between silver and gold. We think it's extremely important. Now, here we're going to go back in time. In the latter part of the bull market that really began in the early 70s, but finally reached its peak in January of 1980. And what this shows is, is not the price of silver and gold, but the relationship between them. We divide an ounce of silver to an ounce of gold. And silver, you can see there in, in mid-1976, reached up to 4% of the price of gold. So one ounce was worth 4% of the price of an ounce of gold. But then it retreated and underperformed from 1976. This is all during a bull trend, by the way. Because the net price from the summer low of 76 through 1980, gold and silver were in fact rising, but silver was underperforming. You can see its readings dropped. Now, there was a point on that spread chart, if you go back to that spread chart, where you can see technically I've plotted two horizontal lines of possible resistance, meaning a ceiling. And both lines were taken out in the summer of 1979 at the red arrow. So at that point in time, the spread said, I'm back. Mm -hmm. um, Silver is now going to outperform gold. Well, that's nice to know. But it was late in the bull trend. Now watch what happened to price. Flip those pages there. Here we go. Now these show monthly bars of silver and gold price chart. And you can see that from 1976 to mid-79, both of them went up, but they went up incrementally, arm wrestling style, mm -hmm. not explosively. And most of that time, gold was actually beating silver on a percentage basis. But in summer of uh, July and August of 79, about one, two, three, four, five, six, seven bars before the peak on silver, with silver was still under 10, right in there, right about there. That's where the spread broke out, where silver said, I'm going to beat gold now. Mm -hmm. But look what happened to the net price of silver. Not only did it beat gold, but it went vertical, it went from mm -hmm. under 10 to 50. In two quarters, and, and again, that that yeah. that's the end of July 
79. And if we go back to the spread chart, yeah. there's the end of July, yeah, yeah. 79. So as July, that- July, August, yeah. In that period is when the spread said, I'm, I'm turning up. And at that point, not only did silver turn up in relative performance terms, but the spreads, the spread, the net price of both metals went vertical. Silver, obviously, in the lead, uh, you know, go from 10 to 50, you know, uh, compared to gold, for example, which at that point in time was around 300. And it went up to 875 in for month. So the multiple gain for gold from that point forward didn't compare to the multiple gain that silver saw. But the point is that not only did silver outperform once that spread reasserted itself, but that's when a tonal change occurred in the monetary metals. Instead of the incremental part of the bull market, they went vertical. Yeah, it's interesting to, as you say, how that change occurs and what the the magnitude of that change signifies as well. And this isn't the only time it's happened, right? Oh, remember during that time, the stock market was a wasteland between the mid-1970s and 1982, which you could have bought stocks and like kissing your sister. It went up and went down and went up and then, but basically it was sideways, mm-hmm. ups and downs. It was a total wasteland. I was a futures broker back then. <laughs> and I'm not a great salesman, okay? Uh, I ceased being a broker in 1992. We started MSA. But at that point in the office I was in, most of the stockbrokers came in after lunch even before they even showed up for work. Their phones weren't ringing at all. It was a wasteland in the office. And I was the best producer, okay? And yet I'm not a real great stockbroker or commodity broker as a salesman, right? I'm not a great salesman. My phone was ringing off the hook. Why? Because commodities were going berserk, Mm -hmm. despite the fact that during that time, we had global stagflation. So we had a weak global economy, a weak U.S. economy, and... uh, Commodities and gold, especially in silver, led led the commodities, but they were going vertical. Mm-hmm. So you know, ponder that when you think about gee, if we're going into a recession now or, or worse, that should hurt gold, huh? History says no. Don't mm-hmm. make that linkage. But anyway, the spread told you in mid seventy nine that something had changed, and boy, did it. So as I said, you know, this isn't the only time in history that this happened, right? So let's use the example of 2008 to 2010 here as well. Yeah, actually gold made its bare low uh, or corrective low after the 1980 peak. It went all the way down to 2000, uh, the year 2000, excuse me, (laughs) went down to around $250 an ounce. And it labored there between 2000, 2001. So the bull market really began in about the year 2000 to 2001, you could have bought gold at 250 bucks or so. Okay. Mm-hmm. And ultimately it went to near 2000. Okay. So it was a huge multiple gain, but it took it a decade to do that mm-hmm. now, but here's the spread relationship starting from year 2006 through the end of that bull market in 2011, where you'll notice silver was fairly firm there in the beginning, 2006 and seven versus gold, but then it started to bleed off and it's relative performance declined from, 2007 to 2008, made a low in late 2008, sort of like the low we made last year in 2022 late. Not only was silver underperforming, but it sort of dropped precipitously relative to gold. And then it bounced and went stable, but still capped off, not back to where it had been on the spread charts back in 2006 and seven, but started the firm and developed a ceiling 
where you have multiple highs. They're not all perfectly aligned, I'll admit. If I picked the top three of those highs that occurred below that red line and used it as my point, but there were three rally highs that peaked all of that, they call it 1.6% area where silver was worth that much of an ounce of gold, 1.6%. But in September, October of 2010, the spread broke out. It said, okay, base completed. I'm reasserting myself on a relative performance basis. And of course it did in a big way. You can see the spread went berserk. It it doubled. Uh, Now, when you, one, one and a half to 3%, you say, well, that's only a percent and a half. That's huge. That's like buying a stock at 150 bucks and having to go to 300 and doing it in about a handful of months. Okay, that's that's what really happened there. But now look at what happened to price during that same time. Back then in gold, after the peak that occurred in early 2008, just above $1,000, Gold went into a range-bound situation with a, with a sharp plummet there in that one month in particular in October 2008. But basically, if you chopped off that one month, it was more or less horizontal action by gold from 2008, 2009. And then you got into late 2009 and it popped through that $1,000 level. Mm-hmm. You can see it, it broke out above the red line. Now, look at silver at that point. Silver didn't make a new high. Silver tried to. It had peaked before at about $21. It got up to 19 something month there in late 2009 and then dropped back off. So while gold made a new price high, didn't cause an immediate explosion. Uh, instead, it just hovered for a while. Silver didn't even make a new high. And that, of course, sort of explains why that spread chart was underperforming. But then in late 2010, you'll see that silver punched out above that $20 level. Well, that's about coincident with what that spread did. That spread broke out over a ceiling. So silver finally joined gold a handful of months after gold had already taken out its price high. Silver did the same thing. But the more important issue was the spread broke out of that basing pattern. And when that spread broke out, you could have thrown the price charts away and just said, okay, something big is going to happen here. And look what happened in a matter of a couple quarters. You know, silver went from 20 bucks to 50. Whoa. And gold went from uh, at that same point in time, that would be uh, late 2010. Uh, gold at that point was uh, like a $1,200. And it 13, went to yeah, $1,200. Oh, nice move. And it went vertical, more vertical. The spread announced that verticality is to come. And also note that the spread breakout occurred late in the bull trend. It was not, we'd already been in a bull trend since lows in 2000, but it wasn't until late 2000, mid 2010 that the spread said, okay, party over. I'm going vertical now. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to be incremental. And sure enough, not only did the spread explode, but the metals themselves on a net price basis exploded as well. Mm -hmm. Late in the bull trend. So now gold is how many years old? Well, it's eight. We're now in our ninth year of bull trend. December 2015 was the bear low. We doubled. And now this year, uh, late last year, actually, we, we popped the new highs. And uh, so gold has done what it did back in 2009, broke out to new highs, but silver hasn't. So we're, we're late in that bull market. And that spread of silver versus gold has got a ripe 
structure overhead. Now, this is the same silver gold spread that we used in that 1976 to 1979, and also from 2006 to 2011. This time, we have a downtrend line instead of a flat ceiling. And you'll see that silver back in 2020, during that big surge that both metals had, silver vastly outperformed gold. It went from like 0.8 something, eight tenths of a percent up to 1.6% almost. No, forward to the current time. Okay, sorry. Yeah, back to the current one. Yeah, that you see the spread really exploded there between mid-2020 and early 2021. Right. But then silver entered a couple-year period of underperformance to gold, where it pulled back fairly sharply into late September of last year. Same with price, both the gold and silver dropped in price at that point, but silver more. And then silver reasserted itself, both in price, went from the $17 zone up into the $24.25 level. But the spread also had a surging rally. At that point, there was not a real good structure developed, which we, we couldn't have plotted this line at that point. But since then, since late 2022, when both metals had a recovery, but silver had more of a recovery, Silver entered a pullback in relative performance. Now it's really not, it's not gone back near the low. In fact, that downtick you see the last reading there is you could uptick it slightly now, but that's intra-month this month. That's not the end of this month close at all. We're early into the month. But you can see and it since early 2021, it has developed a downtrend line, a credible one, where you could drop one, two, three, four, five points to find the line. So we, a red arrow there says if you get a, a monthly close of silver uh, this month or next, somewhere up around 1.22% or higher. Right now we're trading about 1.14%, something like that. So it doesn't take a lot, but you get an uptick to cross that line. And this spread says I'm back. Okay, I've, the, my tenor and tone is changing. Silver's now going to beat gold on a relative basis. But also, given where we are on the clock in terms of the age of this bull market, again, we're now entering our ninth year. And I'm not going to argue they must be 10 or 11 or anything like that, but it's old. And we've been incremental so far, both in gold and silver. The rally has been you know, up and down. But this spread says, OK, something's going to happen here. Some drama is going to be injected into these markets, not just on a spread basis, but probably on a net price basis. And so we're watching this spread very closely now. And our working assumption is when this spread breaks out, you can probably throw your price charts of gold and silver away. They're going vertical or, or something akin to vertical. Okay. Not, not, no longer the incremental process that we've seen for the last eight years. Michael, does it change your analysis of this chart at all when this is a, downtrend line versus the other ones that were horizontal no it's a, it's a good clear structure uh, it's that's the issue for us if this were super steep downtrend line it we might not for example if you go back to that 2021 high there where this red line begins and drew a steeper one you'd see that coming down to that late 2022 low you could have drawn a steep downtrend and you broke out over that we didn't plot it mm -hmm. this is very gradual and you know Gradual lines, horizontal lines, they're, they're a little more credible than something that's super steep. Mm -hmm. So in, in effect, silver's already broken out above the steep one. 
but we prefer the gradual line, which has been defined by enough peaks now for us to really tip our hat to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not uh, it's not an imagination at this point, especially given the last hit up there. We've got now five five hits that basically line up along that line. That's pretty good. That's mm-hmm. a good structure. So we think if you get up there uh, and and take out that red line, or, or maybe even take out that last high, which means get up around 1.25%, mm-hmm. which isn't a big effort, by the way. Uh, then this this chart says, okay, you know, I'm engaged. Mm-hmm. And I think at that point, you'll see not only silver catch up to gold on a price chart basis, but start to outperform it, but also the tone of both markets change. Mm-hmm. And that suggests, I don't think this process is going to last much longer, this pullback. And you'll notice that it's been now uh, over a year since that recent peak up there above 1.3 back in uh, late 2022. So it's been 14 months now. And you've not been able to get back down to that low in late 2022. So while silver's underperformed since that recovery in late 2022, it's not underperformed back to the low. So it, it is finding support. And also you'll notice that where we are right now versus where it was in that September 2022 low and where it was back in March and April of 2020, those are rising. It's just been rising in its support. Uh, the key is to get above the red trend line. We do, we pound the table. So Michael, something that you and I were discussing before we hit record here today is something that the markets aren't really pricing in. And, you know, I wanted to get your take because you and I have talked before about politics. It's always interesting to me to understand how you're thinking about this. So where are you seeing, let's say, towards the end of this year, the election? And what do you think the market could be missing about that time, that point in time? It's missing a whole heck of a lot. Uh, 52 card pickup. You know, we all the China goes off the table. Every, every assumption you had doesn't mean anything anymore. In fact, I've said this in a few interviews and maybe even with you a year ago uh, that I thought the coming upcoming election in 2024 was not going to end copacetically no matter who won. There's no way to have a copacetic outcome. And I'm not going to define what uncopacetic means, but it means you're not going to have an outcome like any normal election where one side says, oh, we lost, but we'll we'll take you on in Congress and, you know, we'll we'll stop your priorities, et cetera. You know, it's sort of like kiss and hug type thing. It's not going to happen this time, no matter who wins. Seems, uh, and it seems clear. to, Go ahead. Uh, sorry to interrupt, but it just seems to be getting worse. You know, we saw in 2016, there was a lot of people said, not my president. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, it seems we're on this road of escalation of this binary outcome, right? Yep. Uh, I Pardon me, I don't interject this much in my RMSA reports were technical, but I'm a libertarian. In fact, I wrote a book titled Anarcho-Capitalism 51 years ago. It was a master's degree thesis, and I've since published it. But uh, interesting, now that term is coming up. The new president of Argentina declares himself to be an anarcho-capitalist. But there's something about perhaps, I'm going to suggest this, I'm not going to pound the table over it, that if there's a bad idea that's in play, and it really doesn't work over time, that evolution will tend to get rid of stuff that doesn't work. Mm-hmm. You know, it dies off because it doesn't function well. And maybe it takes decades to realize that. But perhaps the growing size of statism around the world 
uh, is creating economic problems, underlying decay, uh, problems that will assert themselves in streetwise fashion, affect family spending, family comfort levels, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, that these things are all linked together. Hard to define them because they don't seem connected. But you know, nevertheless, if something is going wrong and it continues to go wrong, we continue to have, for example, monetary boom bust cycles, and you can clearly link them to the Fed. Okay, you know, free money, no free money, free money, no. Free, okay, you know, it, it causes wave effects, but ultimately people get irritated. Now imagine what's going to happen coming up in this year, if we're right about the stock market having already topped in 2022, most indices, if you look at them, did, okay, uh, and, and starts to go back down where people suddenly, their last hope, the stock market, starts to melt and they feel like, oh, gosh, I fooled myself, put all my poor, you know, et cetera. Uh, then you get an emotional impact. It'll also impact the elections in terms of comfort level, okay, mm -hmm. uh, but the forces that are now impacting each other, there's it, the University of Virginia Department of Politics conducted a very interesting poll last October this of last year. And among the questions they asked both Democrats and Republicans, one of them was this, to what degree do you think violence would be justified if the other side wins? And the number on both sides was in the 30 to 40% zone. And we're not talking five percent. With thirty to forty percent on the Democrat side or the Republican side, mm -hmm. said if the other guy wins, violence is justified. And also, there were similar questions around that that sort of emotional issue, mm -hmm. where they they came at it different ways to see what they get the same response, and they got the same type of response. In other words, if the other side wins, is that the end of democracy, et cetera, et cetera? And it's about balanced on both sides. So, and we also know, for example, just in the last month or so. That on one side of the ledger, let's talk about you know, CNN, for example, being on one side, uh, the term Hitler has been applied to the opposition candidate repeatedly mm -hmm. to the point where, you know, that's a norm. He's Hitler. OK, well, I mean, if, if you're a lover of democracy and Hitler gets elected, what are you supposed to do? You know. Uh, be peaceful. OK, so anyway, the tonal nature is already starting to change on both sides. Mm -hmm. And uh, again, I'm, I'm outside the ring looking at forces of statism could collide with each other. But I don't see any way around it. There's already talk in Texas. I think it's on the ballot in the 2024 election a referendum to cause the state legislature to discuss the issue, not to decide yes or no, but to discuss the issue of secession. Okay, you say you think right now, well, that's probably a minority of Texas voters. I think it is. I don't think it's a small minority, by the way. If suddenly you get a bad economy and they assign the blame to, you know, the current president and his party and so forth, then there's even going to be more pressure. And if their side happens to lose the next election as well, you can bet these discussions are going to come to the fore. And that was also a question the University of Virginia asked the voters on both sides. The issue of secession. And it was amazing the high percentage on both sides that thought that would be justified action if the other side won. So anyway, we're headed for something that we expected over a year ago. And now I think it's going to show itself. And I don't think you're going to have to wait to the election to realize the nature of the panic that this is going to cause. I think probably by the end of the first quarter, you're going to start to 
see more and more signs of, oh, gosh, there's no way out. Well, you know, it's such a, such a obviously touchy subject with a lot of consequences, no matter the outcome, it seems yeah, like. Can you imagine what the Fed would do? Mm-hmm. You know, if they have an uns. If all of a sudden employment becomes an issue again, again, like that unemployment, but the notion of political instability, mm-hmm. how that might affect, especially foreign investors' interest or lack of interest in the U.S. government debt market. That's not a data point, mm-hmm. but that's extremely important. The Fed's got, they've got that in the back of their mind. They're aware of the instability that's out there. Uh, and it's got to be a factor uh, for them in terms of shifting to, again, back to, Soft money policy. Mm-hmm. And of course, what's the beneficiary of easy money? Gold. Right. Well, it seems like all the arrows are pointing pointing back to that that outcome. So yeah. it you know, when we take into account that turning action back to easy money or the age of this bull market, there's just so many different things that we can point to that hopefully means that the patience that believers in gold have had is finally going to be rewarded. Yep. Um, I saw a graph the other day going back two years mm-hmm. instead of just this, Oh, where are we versus last year? You know, that's, that's quite often can fluctuate a lot. We went back to 2022 opening of 2022 where, you know, with the opening of 2024. So two years, and they showed stock market, bond market, uh, real estate, et cetera, et cetera. And gold was up there like a gain of about 13% versus two years ago. And virtually every other category was at best break even or down double digits. And yet nobody seems to pay attention to that because it, the monetary metals always seem to inject enough scare into the longs or, or, or cause impatience on the part of the longs that they don't realize the volcano they're sitting on. And I think this variable that we just talked about is one that's not being talked about. And when it comes to four, uh, it's suddenly going to become, you know, all the other data points don't mean anything. Absolutely, Michael. For those of you that enjoyed the charts that we showed today or the discussion, all of Michael's stuff is available at olivermsa.com. And on Twitter as well at Oliver underscore MSA, right? Right. Excellent. Michael, thanks so much for your time and your perspective today. Always appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much, Tom. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. Guests on this show are not compensated for their appearance. Listeners are urged to educate themselves and make their own decisions. Do not base any investment decisions on the information contained. To view our full disclaimer, please visit our website.